You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. What does it take to educate the next generation's conservationists who will work toward the lofty goal of rewilding half of planet Earth? Well, it will certainly take young activists, scientists, politicians, and entrepreneurs with a strong background in conservation science, ethics, and history to pull it off. Dennis Liu, VP of Education for the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation, has a plan for piercing the veil of the current industrial education complex to provide students with a proper conservation education in order to prepare them for the challenges to come. Dennis knows that if we're to achieve the mission of rewilding half the planet, we must provide today's youth with every tool possible to succeed. You know, I'm with the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Our main project is the Half Earth Project, and it's it's named for a book that Ed published in 2017. And in that book, it's the culmination of a lot of scientific evidence, a lot of Ed's thinking, and he calls for putting half of the planet's surface into protection for biodiversity. So half of the land, half of the seas, oceans, waters. If we put half emphasizing protection of all the species that live in those areas, that will reverse the extinction crisis, get us into the safe zone, preserve the ecological functions, all the things we get from the diversity of species that'll get us into the safe zone. So that, that's sort of in a nutshell, the, the mission and the history. And of course, Ed's books are amazingly influential, um, but we're really trying to turn that book into a mission and a series of programs that supports actually getting to that goal of half earth. Um, And of course, most of your listeners will know, and we're very gratified by this, that 30 by 30 is getting a lot of traction in the geopolitical arena these days. And really 30 by 30 is inspired by the ultimate goal of half. And it's sort of viewed as a reachable milestone toward that, that goal. Uh, As a foundation, we are interested actually in things like research that discovers new species. We support research to uh, document where life is on this planet because it's a super important point that life is not evenly distributed on the planet. Um, And then we also support public engagement and education in particular, as I I like to think of it as a special form of public engagement. I work a lot with teachers, high school, middle school, college, and for obvious reasons. I mean, for one thing, doing education work is amazingly gratifying and it's the right thing to do. It's part of our mission. But as far as reach, you you get this multiplier effect. If you if you can work with a teacher 
and sort of influence, help them the way they think about their teaching philosophy, what they teach, how they teach it, that has this huge knock-on effect with their students. And then over, hopefully what, over the course of a career, a teacher influences lots of uh, students in investment right now and in the future. If some kid gets so turned on to some of these topics and really wants to understand more about the natural world that they'll, they'll spend all their spare time on it, that's great. But meanwhile, kids, certainly in the US and in, in, you know, in, in, in the system of education that's pretty prevalent throughout the world, they're in their seats in classrooms for, that's like their job. And so if we can get better, more interesting material in front of them and also support teachers who want their students to have a better learning experience, then that's just a huge, that's a huge win. And so that it's a practical, I would love to, uh, you know, reach as many students as, as say, you know, Disney can, but I'm, I'm not going to try and compete with um, Disney. So I work mostly with teachers and for lots of reasons. I mean, if you're going to make a difference in the educational system, you really have to understand all the constraints that teachers work under. And your, your question sort of acknowledged some of that. You know, we have all these societal values. And um, I just have such great admiration and respect for teachers. They are um, almost universally underpaid and overworked. And if you understand how challenging it is to do something new and fresh and good in a classroom, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a leg in with teachers. If they understand that you understand where they're coming from, that really helps. So when anytime you're trying to do something new, so we're trying to build a, a community of teachers from all disciplines, right? Um, not just science, because social studies teachers, history teachers, even language arts, all of that, they all have a stake in this big question of understanding biodiversity on our planet. And we're looking for to help them find ways to get some of these things into their curriculum. So you want to bring, the, the trick is to bring something fresh, but not not make it look like they have to develop, you know, a, an entirely radical new thing. So if you can do things like tie it to things they're already teaching, tie it to the standards. Now, one of the challenges we have in this is, again, especially in the United States, it's not just 50 states with 50 different systems and experiments. Actually, every district is a little different. And in fact, what goes on in each building is different. So you have to constantly find ways to fit in with um, the existing system and offer something fresh and exciting, but it can't be too far, too far from what they're already doing. Wow. Thank you. And how many more of <laughs> you are there? How many conservation organizations, like do you guys have conferences about this kind of stuff? Do you, do you intermingle with other well, organizations oh, that are yeah. trying to do this yeah. too? Yeah, Jackie, it's such a great question. I work with the National Association of Biology Teachers. I work with the National um, Science Teachers Association. I work with the um, North American Association of Environmental Educators. So there's, 
there are many groups out there. I look for ways that our particular message can fit in, right? So if you're trying, if you're trying to get more conservation and biodiversity into the biology curriculum, you need to talk to biology teachers and you need to understand that they, they've, they've got to teach molecular genetics and straight up botany and lots of other subjects. And so it's, it's a matter of finding ways to, to fit it in. A, another thing, though, is that it's probably natural for people to think of content, right? There's all these facts you need to know. But another way in is, and this is a current positive trend in, in, in U.S. education, is emphasizing skills, tools, ways of thinking, and giving students these skills that they can use across many disciplines and use for the rest of their life. So that's one of the reasons I like this topic of conservation so well, because it's so multidisciplinary and so integrated. Um, in a previous life, I did a lot of molecular biology education. And there, one of the prime motivators is that people care about health. Human health and medicine is a primary motivator to get people interested in that science. But in the case of biodiversity and conservation, we've got a, you know, we've got an existential crisis going on, the extinction crisis, and poor understanding of what life even looks like on our planet, how it's distributed, right? We've got an estimated about 2 million named species. There's it, um, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 million species. So most haven't even been discovered or described. And so most students instantly get the importance of this question. And when you can apply mapping skills, various math skills, a, an eagerness to explore the natural world and different habitats, curiosity about different organisms, that, that, that offers so much. And the skills it takes to ask good questions, draw conclusions, those are really kind of universal learnings. Um, so that's another big advantage um, that this topic has. And I, you know, the teachers I work with, um, they're part of sort of a vanguard that are, they're, they're thirsty for this. They, this is something they want to do. So again, if we can find a way to make that a little bit easier for them, um, they're eager to do it, to, to, bring, these, um, to bring this kind of uh, biodiversity science to their students. Makes me hopeful that there are, there's you and a lot of other people thinking about this in terms of conservation isn't a special interest. It isn't a little class off in the corner of a building that you go to from two to three and then go to another class. And it feels like maybe that that's spreading. Maybe there's still this constraint that the bell rings, you sign up for particular courses. But I've come in contact with amazing schools and amazing teachers who are finding ways to break to break out of that, you know, that sort of constraint of this, you know, this industrialized education system that we've set up. And so obviously, you know, after school clubs are important. Um, 
project-based learning is another way to do it. So when I started this work in earnest, I mean, for the foundation three years ago, the very first thing we did was to design, uh, to, to put together, develop a design challenge. And a design challenge is where you have teachers are guiding, some of our materials are guiding, but it's really put a problem in front of students and ask them to design the solutions and to do it in, in a team setting. And when you set up the, the other advantage of teamwork, if you structure it right, you shift status in the classroom, right? So the, the quiet kid has a role. The kid who's always asking the questions or giving the answers, they're in a, a, a different role. So there's real advantages to structuring the right kind of teamwork. So the challenge we developed, um, and because we are, even though we're, we have a, you know, the, the entire planet is our project, uh, but we are US based and, and mostly English speaking. And so we, we focused on the, on the United States. And so our initial design challenge was put half of the United States into protection for biodiversity. And, you know, you just ask that simple question and get students to say, well, what do you need to know if you were going to solve that problem? And then, okay, here's a map of what forest cover looks like in the United States. You think that might help you? Here's a map of population density by county in the United States. Here's a map of already protected areas in the United States. Um, and, you know, depending on how you want to structure it, how open-ended, you can have students look for other maps. You can provide maps that maybe you think are distractors. Um, but anyways, you know, we have now done this with um, thousands of students and no two solutions are the same. And the, the, the students never cease to surprise me with the sorts of solutions they come up with. And then of course, part of our aim is to hope that in the end of an exercise like that, they realize they need to know more to really make the best decisions. All those questions come up, who owns the land? Who controls the land? How is it used? How do we, how do we measure, oh, okay, so here's the range of where this animal lives, but that doesn't tell us about abundance. Um, what's the, threatened or endangered status of different animals? Are they, all, are, are they all equal? So all those great questions, you know, and so from a, just a very general educator's point of view, that's the kind of minds-on engagement you want um, students to go through. And um, teachers tell me that this approach, you know, it's, it, it's a joy in part because they can, kind of step aside and just watch their students go. We hope that then eventually they'll turn to the half earth map to see what, what does this exercise look like using more real time data? What does it look like um, if I drill in locally? What does it look like? What if I pull back and look at a global scale? You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. 
You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. I remember when only the very cream of the crop of conservation biologists, including the father of conservation biology, Michael Soule, Uh, were the people talking about the things that you're describing you're putting students through now students are talking about what at one time only the best and brightest of biologists in the world were talking about and I was privy to some of those early things and it was all adults in the room when we were doing the sky on the alliance mapping and when wildlands project was doing all the original uh, and Reed Noss was doing uh, Florida wildlands and wildways yep. uh, mapping. And it was just it was just a stodgy kind of, well, the only people who could possibly talk about this. And it was true then. Somebody has to get it started. Were the people who were doing it, Reed Noss and, and Foreman and um, Sule. And yep. to hear you talking about all the things that you just went through, I mean, there was some more to it. I don't want to belittle the the profession of conservation biology or anything. <laughs> There's a lot to that. But basically, what you just mentioned, that that's happening with kids is just heartening and wonderful. Yeah. And we're going to need them. Because speaking of different situations and being able to apply, you know, basic conservation biology, cores, corridor buffers, uh, thinking, layers of maps, different geography, different cultures, different, just like you mentioned with all the schools. I mean, it's like by building, it can be different, not just by city or state. And and on the ground, when you're doing wildway mapping and you're doing, you're trying to figure out how to put pieces back, how to rewild, uh, you can't get into a more, more fertile ground for new discoveries, I guess I should say, than the Mississippi watershed where uh, Half Earth Rewilding uh, Institute and Project Coyote are partnering to do our respective parts for that project. That what is a very very immense project. It's the biggest section of the United States if you were to section it off, and that includes right. Um, this time it includes almost includes Alaska, and that's hardly <laughs> ever the case. But the Mississippi watershed is quite gigantic, and we're focusing on. Um, on the heart of it all, if we can rewild here, we can rewild anywhere. I feel that New York song coming on, <laughs> and that is Iowa. Yep. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what do you think about, what will the students have to think about, how it might be different, but what do you think about as you're telling, as you've told us generally what you do and how you view it, how do you view it going into schools in Iowa to teach kids who have a very deep farming culture about these things, how will they be inspired by what we talk about? When we do the half U.S. design challenge, many students come in with the assumption that our main, the main human impact is where we actually live and that it's urbanization. And they, they might not realize that the bigger part of our impact is all the, you know, all the consumption, even if you just stick to food consumption. So the way we use these agricultural lands is super important, and, you know, and it gets to this. So when I first introduce people to the Half Earth Project, it's always why half? And then usually the next question that comes up is which half? And then kind of a related question is what counts? This Heartland Project is really important in the what counts arena, right? So 
it's not just about declaring new national parks, creating um, new protected areas. There's lots of things we can do to support and improve biodiversity. And, and, and there, there couldn't be a more important one than having, you know, casting a critical eye at our agricultural practices. So I'm not concerned about the teachers and the students. I understand their culture and anytime you approach uh, an audience, whether it's students or teachers, you know, you, you have to listen to them and you have to be respectful and prepared to understand some of their viewpoints. I feel comfortable doing that. And that's the way I would conduct it. You have to, for example, let's just say we're building, we're building an activity or a lesson or a design challenge that's based on helping understand how changing farming could support biodiversity better. You always work directly with teachers to begin to shape an activity and then you review it before you put it out there. So you have, there's, there's checks and balances on this work. But I, I know that I'm more concerned, I guess, about forces outside of the education system in a place like Iowa who, who might not like what we're doing. They might look, they might think that this is, you know, challenging their way of life. There are more similarities with the Rocky Mountains, Yellowstone to Yukon Wildway, mm-hmm. the Superior Bioconservancy up north of us here um, in Wisconsin, Canada, Michigan, the Eastern Wildways, the Western Wildways. They all have, they all have that grandeur, and that means that you know most of our national parks and everything that we've protected is is um, a lot of it is rocks and ice. Right, that's meaning right. it got exactly. protected precisely because it couldn't be dug up and farmed. And and we've all learned, we've all grown up with, well, you know, that's biodiversity and not necessarily because we know that less takes place in higher altitudes. Um, (laughs) They're still very important. And I love all our national parks and everything that we've protected. But the fact remains, we've used the places that would stand to hold the most biodiversity as agricultural places, you know, and, right. and it go and it bears out. And we've always had this little gap in the middle of the co- little gap, giant gap in the <laughs> middle of the country that nobody in conservation's really talked as much about, nearly as much about as they do for the, you know, the majesty of the spine yeah. of the continent. Like there's literally nothing in the Midwest yet that has the same command of your imagination immediately when you say spine of the continent in the midwest we have well we have the mississippi river so that you know at least we could start there right right (laughs) we're gonna have to do it and it's and it's really it's an education thing but it's also a pr thing it's nobody has done david attenborough has never uttered a word about many of the places in the Midwest here that we're talking about. You raise an interesting thing for me because again, our the Half Earth Project has a global perspective. And if you look around the planet, you know, there are biodiversity hotspots that have been identified. But, you know, there's kind of two important components when you're looking at biodiversity. One is richness, which is just how many, how loaded with species is a given area. But then there's rarity, you know, which is what are the species that are special to that place? And no matter if you're, no matter where you live, including Iowa, there's natural places and species that you should care about. And if we can help students engage with some of those special places and organisms, then that's a step toward becoming 
biophilic. And it and it helps, it fits into the storytelling for an area, um, which has already begun That's here. Right. It's not like it's not like nobody's saying anything. Around the fringes of the watershed, we have well-established organizations like Southern Plains Land Trust, and they call their area of southeastern Colorado America's Serengeti. And that immediately evokes, wait a minute, okay, so flat places can be very rich and awesome and full of wonder because I know that because David Attenborough has talked at great length about African countries <laughs> that are wonderful and Serengeti makes that connection. So we do know how to elevate places and, and make people kind of lean in, especially in places where they're like, but where's all the cool scenery or where's, I don't know how to look at this place and appreciate it. And through the education stuff that you're talking about, teaching kids to really look at a place, stop and look and critically and, and, and do exercises and, you know, really learn about it. I, I just love that. I, I wonder what you think we're going to be talking about and how we're going to be talking about these places in 10, 20, 30 years. I would hope that agriculture, like so many other businesses, can see, I hope they're seeing the writing on the wall that they should embrace doing what they can to mitigate against climate change and they should be open to what sort of a twin and lesser appreciated crisis in biodiversity um, and I, and also I think we have to get out of this this either or thinking you know like I run my business or I run my farm or I do my you know whatever my work is this is the way I've got to do it to make a living or be profitable. And it's too bad if it it's causing, you know, irreparable damage to the environment. I, you know, we just have to get out of that either or thinking we have to have food and biodiversity. We have to have clean drinking water and transportation. I think you're right. Um, certainly on a 30 year time frame, which is going to sound, maybe sounds kind of funny. I am hopeful because I think kids are hearing things and basically are in this, in that respect, are getting a better education. But obviously there's strong forces in the other direction. And that's why, that's why we have to work hard at this. And it's also why it can feel sometimes discouraging, but it's a never ending battle. You know, given our system, you have to be continuously ready for a setback. And again, that's why I believe in education. I mean, obviously I've, you know, kind of committed my life to that. You hope that education has some lasting effect and can help continue to do those adjustments that we have to keep and, and keep fighting the battle. 30 by 30 on a federal level has turned out thus far to be not exactly the way we would introduce that you know, language and, and right. talk about what is really protection and everything else. But those of us who've been around for a while have totally expected that. Like yep. we know certain setbacks are coming before they're ever announced and getting kids involved early on, you know, I, I this came as a shock to me in my twenties when I started working at Greenpeace, these kinds of things. What? I mean, I can work on this for five years and then somebody can come and just take a dump on it. And just totally write a, a little piece of code or, or, or a signature could wipe out all of this work. And they go, yeah, 
But if kids start to understand that, they'll not only be not surprised when that happens too badly, they'll still be disappointed. They could also at the same time be taking steps to make sure that that doesn't happen as often in the future. Yeah. Right. Because some of some people become politicians and say this exactly. is the way that I'm going to make my contribution. I'm going to change the laws. I'm going to, you know, and those are the kids you're inspiring now. We need them badly. Exactly. We need the future politicians, engineers, um, you know, writers. We need uh, we need them all. And I, as we were talking about earlier, that's what's so powerful about this topic. And I, I love your point about what else would we do because we have to pay respect to the planet and the biosphere. But it's also that celebration. You've got to you've got to celebrate it. We can't be attending a never ending, you know, requiem mass. So, so it's at least for me, I get, I get angry sometimes, but one of the advantages of doing this education work is that you, when you see a student or even a teacher for that matter, getting it, starting to see a new angle on something, it's just really um, rewarding. And it, 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 it fuels your optimism. I really admire folks who are in the trenches doing conservation work. You know, I'm really an educator. Uh, and I, I've sometimes felt funny, like, well, my call to action is always basically learn something. <laughs> um, but, you know, of course, we hope that, you know, that learning can lead to action. And I hope students are going to be smarter about these things than me and you. The curiosity, the celebration, the learning aspect is a really good way in. Um, because I think for some, a lot of young people listening to kind of politics and journalism talk about this and 30 by 30, it can be pretty off-putting and daunting. Um, there's a lot of, you know, vocabulary and uh, legal and policy complications, which, I mean, it may appeal to some kids, but there's a huge advantage in sort of starting out with the beautiful thing itself and trying to understand that. How big of a percentage of kids, please say 90, but, <laughs> but whatever, how, how big of a, is that really something? Cause you know, oh, you I see them talking is. on Twitter and things and it's like, man, that is so cool to see them just questioning something that everybody else seemed to just swallow in my generation. Yep. No, I think they, I, I think they are. I think they're questioning everything and, you know, I won't, I won't put a, I won't put a percentage on it, but I would say like wanting to have less stuff, I yes. would call that a norm now. Caring about your carbon footprint and, you know, things like recycling, that's a norm. I think we're in a really different time because obviously there's, you know, the same forces like the way social media has changed how movements can happen and how information can spread. Obviously it has its its negative. I mean it's 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 a neutral thing, right? So it's kind of up to us to to try and understand it and nudge it in the right directions. Like you, I'm really hopeful and really inspired by young people. But what but I'm also totally like with with Greta Thunberg on this, right? Which is like it's not up to them, right? We're the ones right now with the resources and the power. Um, and so it's great. They are inspirational and we need to listen to them seriously and, and help, you know, support them to do what 
they want to do and build new institutions and build new ways of doing things. But we, but it's also not like, all right, you know, we've handed we've handed you this completely messed up planet, um, but we're just so glad that you're now prepared to, yeah. to to fix it for us. I'll just mention some of the things we're we're doing in the Heartland now. We can't move into Iowa and start saying like, hey, Iowans, here's how to do this and think about that and fix this. So as I think you already alluded to, there's so many good people and institutions and organizations there. So in this stage, we've been reaching out to form those partnerships to find out who's who's reaching students and teachers already, who cares about these issues, and, and, and hope that we can help sort of build a coalition and help people work together. And sometimes it can be useful to have someone come in from the outside and get uh, local organizations to recognize their own strengths and to work together on some things. Dennis, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, Jack, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.